This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Therefore, the Lord has brought all of this disaster on them. And at the end of 20 years, in which Solomon had built two houses, the house of the Lord and the house, the king's house, and Haram, the king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress, timber and gold, as much as he desired. King Solomon gave, it, gave to Haram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. But when Haram came to Tyre to see the city Solomon had given him, it did not please him. Therefore he said, what kind of cities are these that you have given me, my brother? So they are called the land of Kabul to this day. Haram had sent to the king 120 talents of gold. And this is the account of forced labor that King Solomon drafted to build the house of the Lord and his own house the, and the Milo and the wall of Jerusalem and Hazar and Megiddo and Gezer. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, had gone up from Ep and captured Gezer and burned it with fire and killed the Canaanites who lived in the city and had given its dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife. So Solomon rebuilt Gezer and lower, lower Beth Haran and Belath and Tamar in the wilderness and in the land of Judah and all the store cities that Solomon had and the cities for his chariots and the cities for his horsemen and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem and in Lebanon and in the land of dominion. All the people who were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Presites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites were not of the people of Israel. Their descendants, who in, their descendants who were left after them in the land, whom the people of Israel were unable to devote destruction to destruction, these Solomon drafted to be slaves, and so they are to this day. But of the people of Israel, Solomon made no slaves. They were soldiers, and they were his officials, his commanders, his captains, his chariot commanders, and his horsemen. These were the chief officers who were over Solomon's work, 550 who had charge of the people who carried on the work. But Pharaoh's daughter went up from the city of David to her own house that Solomon had built for her. Then he built the Milo. Three times a year, Solomon used to offer up burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar that he had built for the Lord, making offerings with it before the Lord. So he finished the house. King Solomon built a fleet of ships at Izan Geber, which is near Eloth on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. And Hiram sent with his fleets seamen who were familiar with the sea, together with the servants of Solomon. And they went to Ophir and brought them brought from their gold 420 talents, and they brought it to the, king, to the king Solomon. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And thank you for reading that long text. You got to get a school teacher to do that. They're used to reading aloud to everybody else. Um, yeah, the rise and the fall of King Solomon, that's what we've been looking at here uh, during this new year. And, and the title of the sermon this morning is Using Power. And I think that's a subject of interest to most all of us. We are in our culture particularly attuned to this topic. Our radars are up for, at least for abuses of power, misuses of power, and, and rightly so. A lot of damage has been done 
A lot of people have been hurt. A lot of institutional reputations have been tarnished or destroyed by misuse of power or abuse of power. But at the same time, some of us, I think, have mistakenly assumed that the very use of power at all is necessarily an abuse of power. Using power, we may equate with abusing power, but that can't be right, or at least not in the way that I want to talk about power this morning. Let me give you a definition so we know what we're talking about here. This is one that's used by Walter Henniger and uh, Peter Scazzaro, who's teaching on this topic, has really helped me out quite a bit. Uh, but this is a definition for power. Power is the ability to influence reality. Power is the ability to influence reality. And in this sense, there is no such thing as a completely and utterly powerless person. Power is the ability to influence reality, which means all of us have some of it, which also means then we need to be thinking about how we use it. For those of us especially who are Christians here this morning, we should be asking, are we using whatever power that we have in ways that glorify God and bless others? Uh, just to give you a little bit more to, to think on this morning as you're thinking about your own use of power. Peter Schizero has written a number of books, but one in particular uh, that is helpful uh, called The Emotionally Healthy Leader. And in that book, he lists six different forms of power that we use in our public life. And I'll just go through these very quickly. Six forms of power that may be there for you in your life in some capacity. The first is what you might call positional power. This is typically what you think of when you think about power. It's the kind of power that comes with a title, comes with uh, something you can put on your business card. This is a more formal kind of power. It's a role or a position that you have in an organization or a group. But this is maybe the easiest to understand, but far from the only kind of power. There's also what you might call personal power, and this has more to do with how God has made you uniquely as a person. So your gifts, your skills, your strengths, your intelligence, your charisma, apart from any formal position, combination of these qualities in you give you some degree of power and influence with other people. There's also representative power. This is a power that comes uh, not in yourself, but by whom you represent. So an ambassador is probably the most obvious form of this, right? They speak not out of their own authority, but the authority of the one that they're representing. To some extent, pastors have power in this way, representative power. Our job is to represent God, to represent the church, to represent God's word to his people. There's uh, projected power. This is power that comes through transference, right? So you meet somebody in your life and they're like somebody that you've known before. They make you think of somebody that you've known before. And so you grant them a kind of power that maybe isn't necessarily there, but because of some previous experience you have. Or maybe it's the other way around and you find that somebody else is giving you some sort of uh, voice in their life that you didn't know you had because of, you come to find out later, some previous experience that they have that's projected power. There's relational power. This is the power that comes through trust. It's born of the strength of a relationship. It comes out of the history that you have with somebody. And then lastly, there's cultural power. Your gender or your age or your ethnicity or your vocation may come with a certain degree of power depending on the cultural moments in which we live. 
Now, my reason for bringing all those up is that we all, all of us, have a responsibility for stewarding whatever power that we have in our lives, whether you're in a place of positional power or not, you do have some ability to influence reality. In this chapter, 1 Kings chapter 9, we see Solomon exercising power. Now, none of us have the kind of power, the degree of power that Solomon has. At least as I look out here, I don't think any of you are running countries, right? Running nations. But that doesn't mean we don't have any power at all. And so the question to ask as we look at this text, the one to keep in front of us this morning, is Solomon using the power that he has in ways that reflect the heart of God or not? And what's interesting is the biblical writer does not tell us the answer to that question, at least not directly in this text. You might say this passage is more descriptive than prescriptive. That is, it tells us what happened, not much of a comment as to whether this is a good or a bad thing, which leads to wildly different interpretation. Commentators that I've relied upon throughout this series who come from a very similar theological place look at this chapter in very different ways. In fact, just two different commentaries that I read this week. One entitled this chapter, The Efficiencies of Solomon's Kingdom, and the other, more ominously, entitled it, All is Not Well. <laughs> Maybe this is a good thing, though. The difficulty in placing the label of hero or villain onto Solomon is helpful in reminding us of the complicated nature of our own hearts and the complicated nature of our own use of power. And so just two big headings this morning as we get into the text. Two things I want you to see. We're going to look at Solomon's ongoing choice that God puts before him. And then secondly, we'll look at some of these areas where Solomon exercises power. Solomon's choice, Solomon's power. So let's look at his ongoing choice first. The chapter begins with God visiting Solomon for a second time. We started the series uh, with this first visit uh, that God makes to Solomon in chapter 3. He comes to Solomon and he says, what then shall I give you? Solomon, at this point, he knows he's in over his head. He's a young man. He's a new king. He's trying to govern the people. He's completely overwhelmed. And so when God says, what shall I give you? Solomon asks for wisdom. And God likes this prayer. He delights to answer this prayer. And he grants Solomon wisdom. But now God comes a second time. And he says to Solomon here in verse 4, he says, walk before me. This is a call for Solomon to conduct his life in the presence of God, to live life knowing that he is doing so in view of the living God. Walk before me, Solomon. And you know what this means, right? I mean, Solomon has done really well up to this point. Not without flaw, but he's doing really well. The call, though, to walk before God is a reminder that this is not something you can just check off, right? Obedience to God is not a one-and-done thing. Solomon cannot coast on past obedience, but always before him is this call. Walk before the Lord. Conduct your life before the eyes of the living God. And you know, Jesus talks this way too. Right? Follow me is the call that he gives his disciples. And that, too, is an ongoing thing. Yes, there's an initial laying down of the nets that the disciples who were fishermen had to do in order to first follow Jesus, but this call, follow me, 
is an ongoing, continual thing. It's a call to keep near to Jesus, a call to grow into His ways. It's a call to be continually renewed in His image. God says, walk before me. He goes on, as David, your father walked. And he says, if you do, I'll bless you. I'll bless the kingdom. I'll bless your successors after you. And David now, in the rest of the book of Kings, becomes the yardstick for how the kings of Israel will be measured. And what's so interesting about that is is David, if you remember, David is, is far from perfect as a king. We did a series here a couple of summers ago on the life of David, and And we saw in David's life, there's all kinds of failures. There's all kinds of sin and brokenness. David's life is not the measuring stick because he was without sin, but no, it was because, in the words of Samuel, David was a man after God's own heart. His obedience was imperfect, but his heart was soft toward God. When David did sin, and he was called on it as he was by Nathan the prophet, he repented. He changed. And God says to Solomon that if you walk before me like that, you and your descendants after you will be blessed. But if not, verse 6, he says there will be consequences. There will be judgment. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and statutes that I have set before you, but if you Go and serve other gods and worship them. Then, he says, there will be judgment. Verses 7, 8, and 9 go on to describe what this judgment would look like. There will be a a loss of many things. There will be a loss of turf. (laughs) I will cut off Israel from the land. They'll go into exile. It will be the loss of the temple. This house will become a heap of ruins. Pretty crazy to think about. Here we are just barely getting the temple constructed, and there's already a warning about its possible destruction. And then finally, a loss of the throne. If you follow like David, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if not, well, then not. You see the gravity of all of this? Solomon has done really well. Following the Lord is not a a one-off deal. He can't coast on past obedience. The call is to constantly be walking before the Lord. And the arena where this ongoing choice will play out is in how Solomon exercises the power that he has. And that's what the remainder of this chapter is about. Solomon's power. And there are at least three areas here that we can see him exercising power in chapter 9. And the first one is what you might call partnerships, and politics. Verse 10, it says, at the end of 20 years, in which Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house, and Hiram, king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress, timber and gold, as much as he desired. Now, Hiram, it's not his first appearance here in the book of Kings. He came up in chapter 5, where Solomon first makes a, a treaty, an agreement with him. And you learn pretty quickly, this is not a relationship between equals. Hiram is very much the junior partner here in this relationship. His kingdom, Tyre, is a, a vassal state. It's outnumbered. It's outgunned, outhorsed, outcharioted. So Hiram more or less has to do whatever it is that Solomon wants, but he does have something to offer. Hiram's kingdom has all kinds of natural resources. He has lumber, 
might have heard of the cedars of Lebanon. He has uh, lots and lots of gold. And Solomon utilizes these materials in his various building projects. And so here in our chapter, Solomon comes back because he needs more. He needs more gold. He works out an agreement to get 120 talents of gold. Now, this is a lot of gold, 9,000 pounds of gold, four and a half tons of gold for building with. And how will he pay Hiram for this? Well, verse 11 continues, King Solomon gave to Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. Now, that word cities in Hebrew is actually, cities is probably a very generous term, right? This means something more like settlements or little villages. And Hiram is not impressed with this deal. Verse 12, Hiram came from Tyre to see the cities that Solomon had given him, and they did not please him. And I love this part because you can, you can kind of picture this in your mind, right? One guy is, is pretty ticked off, but he knows he really can't show it because the other guy's bigger and tougher. And so in verse 13, he says, what kind of cities are these that you've given me, my brother? <laughs> right? This is not cool, my brother, he's saying. In the second half of the verse. So they are, call, they call, are called the land of Kabul to this day. Kabul means fetters or means chains. Something that drags you down, right? If you've ever had a house or a car that was a money pit for you that you felt like you were chained to, well, that's what Hiram thinks of these settlements in Galilee. When my brother Scott turned uh, 16 years old, uh, our older brother Rick sold him his car. And uh, this was not a good deal because this car, it was called the Blue Nun. I'm not sure why we called it that. It uh, was blue. It did not resemble a nun. We were Catholic, so we were around nuns a lot. But I'm not sure uh, what about the car conceived that in our minds. But it was called the Blue Nun. It was rusty. It was old. I can't even remember the, the make or model of the car. I do remember that the liner of the ceiling was constantly falling down. And every few days, you'd have to staple it back up to the top. But it wasn't just cosmetically a bad car. It was functionally a bad car. And within about a week of my brother buying it from my other older brother, uh, it broke down. And so my brother Scott came into the house furious, asking my brother Rick for his money back, you know, that he got cheated in this deal, to which unsympathetically, my brother Rick simply said, buyer beware. (laughs) I can only imagine that Scott felt a little bit like Hiram in this story. Later on, as Solomon wants to expand Israel's footprint, footprint, excuse me, in international trade, he builds a fleet of ships. This is verse 26. This is a new thing for Israel. Not a seafaring people. They fish a little, but they don't have a lot of boats. Now he builds this fleet, but they don't have anybody who can sail these ships. And so Solomon says, Hiram, I know your guys can sail. And he employs the men of Tyre to do so. Now that's one partnership that we see here where Solomon is leveraging his power Another one is with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Now, the dynamics in this one are are completely different because Egypt is strong. So Solomon just can't run over him in this relationship. Instead, they make a marriage alliance. Verse 16, verse 24, Pharaoh's daughter is given to Solomon in marriage in the city of Gezer, which Egypt had conquered from the Canaanites, is given as a dowry for the wedding. And this whole thing was a common form of Diplomacy in the ancient world, the idea was to create overlapping interests between these two nations. Pharaoh's daughter now lives in Israel, so he'll have an interest there, right? If they have kids, Pharaoh's grandchildren would live in Israel. 
some shared interests there. And so we see Solomon carefully navigating his use of power through these partnerships. But is he using them well? What do you think? Maybe? Kind of? The text doesn't tell us exactly, does it? I mean, it certainly seems to be beneficial for Israel, but there is a kind of fragility to all of this. And if you read the rest of the book of Kings, you'll see that this is the case. It seems like Solomon is spending a lot of time and effort trying to keep everybody happy, working a deal with Hiram, just giving him just enough to keep the gold and the timber flowing into Israel, aligning interests with Pharaoh to make sure that side is protected of his kingdom, later building a palace for Pharaoh's daughter, which had to be outside of Jerusalem because she brings her gods with her into this relationship, which are not allowed near the temple. This whole thing sort of gives you the idea of a complicated dance going on, keeping everybody happy. And the truth is, Solomon's pretty good at it. But none of his successors can ever quite match his proficiency. Now think about your own life. The areas where you have leadership or influence, just the relationships that you have. You might know that anxiety that comes trying to keep everybody happy, trying to keep all those plates spinning. And if that's what drives you, it can be incredibly exhausting. And actually also, not a really good place to lead from, right? Rather than leading from mission and principles and values, instead constantly worrying about everybody's reactions, that's a recipe for dysfunction. And when organizations begin to operate like this, you know who has the most power in those kinds of relationships? The people with the most power in those dysfunctional organizations are the people with the most anxieties, right? It's their fears that drive the agenda. It's their worries that dominate the organization and the leadership's time and their priorities. But a good leader can care for people in their fears, but also not allowing those most worried and fearful to drive the agenda of the organization, And what's so interesting is when you look at the life of Jesus in the Gospels, one of the things that stands out almost immediately is his near complete lack of anxiety. Even when he's marching toward the cross, yes, he has agony in those experiences, particularly in the Garden of Gethsemane. But even there, Jesus is not driven by fear or the desperation of others, be it his friends or his enemies. He's driven by his mission to bring salvation into the world. Throughout his ministry, Jesus is always talking about doing the will of the Father. That's what he's zeroed in on, even when that disappoints others or even when that puts him at odds with others. John chapter 6, for example, he says, I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of the one who has sent me. Or John chapter 7, my teaching is not my own, but his who sent me. A non-anxious leader is driven not by the dance of keeping everybody happy, but by walking before the face of God. Second area that we see Solomon exercising power is in production. Starting verse 15, we get a list of the royal building projects, and it's pretty impressive. Walter Brueggemann, one of the commentators, says this. He says, it is clear that organizational genius is at work here in Solomon's deployment of human resources. His scheme exudes competence and efficiency 
though without reference to humane treatment. The report is almost an exemplar of how to make a great society work and make an economy hum. It's supposed to be a wow factor as we read this list. And next week we'll see the Queen of Sheba come to Israel, and she's wowed by all that she sees in Solomon's kingdom. It's impressive. A genius leader. But is Solomon exercising his power in line with the heart of God? That's our question. Verse 15, and this is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon drafted. Forced labor. It's another word for slavery. He made people go to work. They didn't get a choice. Verse 22 says he didn't make the Israelites into slaves, but he did utilize the forced labor of other conquered peoples. This brings up an even bigger question than simply evaluating Solomon. And that question is, does the Bible condemn slavery or not? And if it does not, How then can we trust anything else the Bible has to say? Now, this is a big question at any time, but it's especially a big question to try to tackle as a subset of a single point about 25 minutes into a sermon. So let me just say a few broad things, all right? First, the Bible is absolutely clear that being a slave is not a desirable state. Being in slavery is a bad thing. No rosy pictures are painted here anywhere in the scripture of people being a slave. Jesus likens being in the grips of sin to being a slave, to being enslaved. Paul urges folks who find themselves in slavery to get their freedom if they can. Paul writes one of his letters, the book of Philemon, to persuade a slave owner to set free a slave. And lest we forget, the single largest storyline in the Old Testament is God coming to liberate the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, right? The Old Testament itself is a liberation text. That's number one. Number two, the Old Testament law explicitly and unequivocally condemns any kind of kidnapping or human trafficking. The old terminology is man-stealing. Exodus 21, anyone who steals someone and sells them into slavery should be put to death. And of course, that means then that the entire enterprise of the American slave system, which was based on the kidnapping and trafficking of African men and women and children, is condemned by the Old Testament law. Of course, we know that there were many American Christians who participated in the slave trade. And the hermeneutical gymnastics that they had to go through to rationalize this, however, speaks more to the evils of the human heart than it does to the integrity of the scriptural text. But thirdly, there's still something going on here, right? In 1 Kings chapter 9, other places like it in the Old Testament. The forced labor here was not a kidnapping. It was not race-based. But rather, it was commonly what happened when one nation defeated another nation. The conquered people, rather than being free to move about and go on with their lives, they were either placed into exile, like Daniel was, if you read that story in the Old Testament, or, as in this case, they were forced to work for the dominant group. Now, having said all of that, there is not what we probably wish there was, a silver bullet verse that clearly condemns slavery for all times and all places and all ways. I can't give you that kind of proof text. But I will tell you this. 
The first person that we know of in the history of the world, by the way, the first person that we know of to condemn slavery at all times, in all places, in all ways, was a man by the name of Gregory, the bishop of Nyssa. In the 370s AD, a time where slavery was ubiquitous in the world, Gregory preached a famous sermon in which he said this. He said, how many obols for the image of God? That's a, a, a currency, a unit of currency. How many obols for the image of God? How many staters, another unit of currency? How many staters do you get for selling the God-formed human being? For Jesus Christ, who knows the worth of every human, has said an entire cosmos is not worthy to be exchanged for a human soul. Who can buy a man or sell a man once you realize that he is in the image of God? I can't give you one verse, but Gregory is giving you the theology of the Bible worked out of good necessary consequence to address that question. The doctrine of the image of God prohibits the buying and the selling and the exploitation of any human being. Now that's all kind of an aside here. But an important one, because even in our text, we see that while the writer of Kings is clearly demonstrating the organizational genius of Solomon, the seeds of trouble are being sown comes to roost later on when Solomon's son, Rehoboam, doubles down on these same policies and actually ends up splitting the kingdom of Israel. Walter Brueggemann, the one who called Solomon an organizational genius earlier, he goes on to say that God provides his own criteria for success, and it includes, this is a quote, nothing about trade or buildings or alliances or organization. God's Uh, criteria for success rather turns on the single point of Torah obedience. If Torah, that is the law of God, has to do with the love of God and the love of neighbor, then the massive expansionist enterprise of Solomon is to be judged harshly as a deep failure. Your personal dilemmas about how to use power are happening, I would guess, in a very different stage than that of Solomon. But one thing you can apply is the rubric of love of God and love of neighbor. You know, Jesus had more power even than Solomon, more power than anyone. But how does Jesus use that power? He is always using his power not to dominate others, but to elevate others. Philippians chapter 2 is probably the best text about this. It's all about how Jesus comes from the highest heaven. And where does he go? He takes the role of the lowest servant in order to bring salvation into the world. He's even willing to die to elevate others. Will you look to Jesus? You're meant to bear his likeness. Will you humble yourself? to love and to serve and to elevate others like he does. One last area we should consider as we close, Solomon's exercise of power with regard to faith and religion. Verse 25, it says, Three times a year, Solomon used to offer up burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar that he built to the Lord, making offerings with it before the Lord And so he finished the house. So three times a year, it says, these are most likely the major festivals of Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles. And and this is a good thing, right? Solomon is making provision for the people to remember what the Lord has done for them, to make sure that observing God's place is front and center in their life together as a people. But again, all the commentators differ. What we're supposed to take from this, is this an example of orthodox faith continuing under Solomon? 
Or is he kind of mailing it in, using faith as a showpiece, like so many of our politicians seem to do? The answer is, I don't know. The text doesn't tell us, but we do know that in the coming chapters, Solomon's heart drifts further and further and further from the Lord, which at the very least should caution us that we can be doing the right things externally, and still our hearts can be far from him. So key question, is Solomon using power in ways that reflect the heart of God? It's not always clear, is it? But maybe that's kind of the point. The series is called The Rise and the Fall of King Solomon. Is he rising or is he falling here in chapter 9? Maybe he's right there at the top, right? Maybe this is peak Solomon, and he can go either way. And thus the timely call of God, walk before me. Walk before me as your father David walked. It's the same call that comes to each of us. Walk before the Lord. Steward whatever power, whatever influence you have for the glory of God, for the love of your neighbors. Let's pray. And then we're going to come to the Lord's Supper together here in a moment. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for this text, even if at times it's perplexing to us. We're thankful that every bit of your word is useful uh, to us, is God-given and is fruitful and applying to our lives. And so we ask that you would help us to make sense of this, even as we evaluate our own lives. How are we using the places of power, the places of influence that we have? Lord, we pray that we might utilize them more and more, not for our own benefit, but to give you glory to benefit others. And even as we have this in mind, we remember the example of Jesus who's willing to lay down his life for us. And now as we continue to pray, we pray using the words that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's New City, C-I-N-C-Y. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.